0: You can earn up to 0.8 advanced ASHA CEUs if you are or you become a member of the MedSLP Collective, and the recording is also available inside of the Collective. Ready to scale your clinical skills? Go to MedSLPCollective.com forward slash summit to register today. On this episode of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, we have Dr. Memory Gosa. She's a pediatric SLP, board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and associate professor and chair of the communicative disorders department at the University of Alabama. She has 20 years of clinical and research experience in pediatric dysphagia and pediatric feeding disorders. Her research focuses on exploring the reliability and validity of common assessment tools and treatment techniques used in the identification and management of pediatric dysphagia and pediatric feeding disorders. She has published book chapters and peer-reviewed papers on these topics, and she frequently presents both nationally and internationally. She maintains a small clinical practice at the University of Alabama Speech and Hearing Center and in the Neonatal Intensive Care Unit of Druid City Hospital in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the MedSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut... Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good morning, Memory.
1: Hey, good morning. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for the opportunity to talk. It's been a while.
0: Yes, I know. Lovely seeing you. So tell the people a little bit about yourself. Yeah. Um,
1: So my name is Memory Gosa. I'm a speech pathologist um, and have been in practice now for 20 years. This is my... 20th anniversary of finishing um, my graduate program. I work primarily in the pediatric dysphagia space, came to it in a roundabout way because I really thought that I wanted to work in infant and child language development. That's what most excited me when I finished my graduate programming. Uh, So started in early intervention and worked with a lot of families who were not so concerned that their children didn't talk but were more concerned that their children didn't eat so they had been born early or they had um some pretty um complex health issues right after birth and so hadn't been able to eat in hospital and many of them had g tubes or had really severely limited diet um issues and so that's what families were most interested in and it's something that I really didn't know a whole lot about so really That guided me towards learning more information and then eventually. My practice into pediatric dysphagia, and and that has been the last nineteen years of my life. Then, so um, I worked at Le Bonner Children's Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee, until two thousand thirteen. Um, did my PhD work there in Memphis um, under the direction of Dr. Joel Kahane and Dr. Deborah Suter. And then, as I finished that up, there was an opening at the University of Alabama for someone with expertise um, either in swallowing or voice, and voice, and so it was just a really nice fit, and since uh, I am from Alabama originally, we decided to, to try for it, and I have been here now at the University of Alabama for the last nine years, and uh, am currently an associate professor and chair of the Department of Communicative Disorders.
0: Awesome. I love that. Thank you for taking us on that whole
1: journey. Yeah. You didn't want to know about the last 20 years, but I, no, I love it.
0: No, I, I always, when I, and that's why I love doing these conversations because it's always so interesting to see sort of where people started and if they're still on the same path or they swerved and where they, where they are now. So yeah, it gives people a lot of hope that you can, you can swerve or you can stay the path or. It's yeah, it's good.
1: all combinations of those things. Yeah. Okay. So where should we start? Memory, what do you want to discuss first? So as you may or may not know, in the last two years, ASHA has pulled out pediatric feeding and swallowing into its own topic area. And so I've had the opportunity to chair that committee. And um, last year and this year, equally, uh, we've had a wonderful opportunity to develop focused presentations around pediatric feeding and swallowing. So that has been a great opportunity. And so we have a lot of things on the books coming up for this year. Uh, One of the sessions that I wanted to highlight for everybody is the motor learning primer for pediatric feeding and swallowing development So it's a two hour masterclass that will be held this year at the Ashen Convention in New Orleans. The presenting authors are Emily Zimmerman, Anna Miles, Rachel Arkenberg, Georgia Malandraki, and Angela Melconian and it's a two hour master class. So it's a really deep dive into these motor learning principles and how they guide feeding development and then ultimately um, feeding and swallowing intervention when there are issues there. So I'm really excited about this class and the presenters that are coming. So I hope that it is one that other pediatric feeding and swallowing uh, professionals will be interested in. So it's going to be on Saturday, November 19th at 930 in the morning and it It is one that will require, I think, an additional fee for attending because it's the masterclass format. But I wanted to make sure everybody knew about it because there's so many great options um, at ASHA this year. And of course, the opportunity to be in person uh, down in New Orleans. So while people are doing some early planning, I wanted to make sure everyone knew about that one and about the track for pediatric specific information um, around feeding and swallowing at ASHA uh, this year. So when you're using the planner, you can filter the topics by, or you can filter all the sessions by the different topic areas. So be sure and look for that pediatric feeding and swallowing topic area, and then it'll return all the different programming that is specific to that. And we do have some crossover sessions with the adult population, like some lifespan presentations that are going to go across both topic areas, uh, but that's an easy way to filter and find things that you may be interested in there. Cool, awesome. Are you presenting at ASHA this year? I am presenting at ASHA this year. So, over the last, I think now it's been almost two years, I've been working with Dr. Jean Marshall and Dr. Pamela Dodrell on a scoping review where we are looking to see what are the instruments and tools that are available in our field that will help with the diagnosis of pediatric feeding disorder. So um, I think in 2019 the consensus panel came out with a uh, definition for PFD and gave us the laid the groundwork for getting the ICD code um, so that we could could work in that area and we could start to identify uh, in a better way children that had issues around feeding and swallowing Our um, pediatric dysphagia definition didn't always capture all the kids that we were working with. So, this the PFD definition then gave us, I think, a better way to track kids that were having feeding and swallowing issues um, outside of just skill based issues. It really opened the door for working with kids that had. Sensory based issues and behavioral um, components, um, because as you know, working in the dysphagia area, it's really just one thing that you can point to and say, okay, this is why this child has a difficult time eating. Um, usually there's a combination of factors that usually started with uh, medical diagnosis that impacted their ability to swallow safely, but then In the course of of their life and development, other factors have been layered on top of that. So um, the pediatric feeding disorder diagnosis then set out a way for us to identify those kids uh, and to track uh, how we're working with them and and how they're recovering. So in that, though, it became, well, how do we identify those kids? Because with PFD, it says it's an impairment in oral intake um, that is related to one of one or more of of these four factors. So medical, um, nutritional, psychosocial, and oral skill-based areas. So then how do we identify um, issues across all of those different areas? So this scoping review review that I've been doing um, with my colleagues has um, helped us identify some tools that are available in the literature. And then we've gone through the Cosman process to evaluate the quality of those resources. And so we're presenting results from that to everyone that's coming at ASHA this year in uh, a tech session. And we'll, we'll have about 20 minutes to, to give everybody the preliminary results um, and talk through what this might mean for clinical practice. Cool. Excited. Yes, it's been a lot of work. anytime someone poses the question and says, well, what does the literature say? And you think, oh, I'll just do a quick search and figure that out. And then two years later, you're like, oh, why Why is there so much to figure out? So that's that's where we've been. It's been good work, um, rewarding work for sure, because it's also informed my clinical practice and then helps with teaching as well. But there's a lot to comb through.
0: Yeah. Is there anything you can share that you think surprised you in the literature or anything that you found really interesting or fascinating that you think people might not know about or might not be informed about yeah
1: so i don't i don't know that it's surprising or like something that people are going to be like ooh um, but what has most interesting to me is the volume of tools that are available but how few of the tools that are available to us go beyond just initial reliability Ah, data right so we know that it's reliable but it doesn't mean that it's accurate and just so many of the tools that are available in the literature I feel like were created for a very specific purpose but then don't get used beyond that research purpose so that the sheer volume of tools that are available was it was interesting to me and then just how I mean I don't it's no fault of a researcher or anything like that, but we just don't get past that initial reliability point. So we know it's reliable, but then in terms of psychometric data, sometimes it stops there. So we don't know the validity and beyond just initial inter and intra-rater reliability of some of the tools that we're working with or that are available to us. So, and then the, the other part there is oftentimes you when we're doing when I'm doing presentations or when I'm working with students and figuring out a diagnostic procedure. And I say, well, there's just, there's not a tool for that, but there is, we just not, we don't know about it. So many of these tools get reported in the literature. And then it's like, they go there to die because they never get picked up and incorporated, you know, into clinical practice, which we would need to do to then be able to continue to validate them and and show their validity. So that, that I think is encouraging, but then also frustrating. There are tools available. We have some preliminary um, information that, that lets us know we could use them reliably, but then in terms of like long-term outcomes and um, does it have any predictive ability to it, the usefulness of a lot of those tools just just isn't there.
0: So what do you think, what is sort of the answer, I guess, from a researcher perspective? Is it getting it to the hands of the clinicians to use more or do you not do the we not want the clinicians using it until it's had more validity and data behind it. Yeah, I think that's a an
1: interesting question. Um from my standpoint and what I'm thinking through here is we don't want to do things that aren't evidence-based. We know that. But we do things that aren't evidence-based every day because instead of using tools with any kind of psychometric data behind them, we'll come up with our own little assessment <laughs> yeah. that we do quickly at the bedside. And I know why we do that. Cause I've done that, you know, there, I, I think I don't have anything um, available to do that. So let me just ask these few things and then I'll give me an idea and I can go from there. So I, I, I get that point, but I do, I do want us as a profession to, to have research work more closely with clinical, right? So that it's not, there aren't tools that were invented for this one purpose and then never get applied in the clinic. And then that would help clinicians not feel like they had to reinvent diagnostic procedures every time they're doing something, right? So, I mean, that's nothing new. Everyone says that, but I think universities are in a unique position because they have research and clinic working hand in hand in a lot of a lot of settings. Our setting is like that. We have an on-campus clinic um, and we have active um, research faculty that are innovating tools and coming up with different diagnostic procedures. So there there is that opportunity. I wish that there was more opportunity for that in our field that we had Clinicians that also identified themselves as researchers, um, whether or not I don't want to say whether or not they have done the PhD or not, but you, know, th- th- there are clinical researchers and there are people that identify that way. And then sometimes I feel like they they don't they don't have the pathway to take it to the next level, right? Like they haven't had an opportunity to do um, PhD study and those kind of things. But identifying people within the community that maybe can facilitate that next step when clinicians have. So QI projects or other types of clinical research interest, having someone available to help bridge that gap. That's how I started in PhD work. The hospital I worked at, we were fortunate to have someone who did clinical research that was part of our program for a long time. So that was not, that wasn't something that people thought was out of our scope. Like it was just part of the program. If, if we had a question and we investigated it and we applied the results to our to our clinical work. Um, and then when she left, that was still an expectation that we all had. So we reached out, I was in Memphis, so we reached out to the University of Memphis, that's where Dr. Suter was, and said, here's our idea. How do we go about doing that? And so then she was, she is a clinical um, scientist. And so she was like, oh, well, we could try it this way. And she helped us design the studies, you know, and then carry them through. But that was um, the benefit of having someone in the community that was a clinical scientist that could help clinicians carry through their ideas into meaningful um, studies that could then inform our our practice. And I think that's something that we could all do, but we don't all have the same resources. I understand that for sure.
0: Cool. Well, thank you for sharing all of that. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, any other ASHA talks? So we talked about the motor learning
1: primer. Um, that's the master class that we're doing. There's another master class that was a, um, a joint venture. So this one is weaning from tubes and thickener in the pediatric population, an interprofessional panel. And that's also a two-hour master class um, that's going to feature Kara Fletcher Larson from Boston Children's Hospital, Brianna Milik, mm-hmm. I'm afraid I'm saying her last name wrong, and that. I- Keep saying it, so maybe... Someone will correct me how I'll get a chance to meet her <laughs> yes. in person and I can hear yes. how she says her last name. Um, I, can see so, it. I can see
0: how it's spelled, but I don't know how to pronounce it either. So sorry, I'm <laughs> afraid
1: I'm saying it wrong, in which case I apologize. But she is also going to be part of this panel. And then Marianne McSweeney and then Tony Solari, um, both from Boston Children's Hospital as well. So they, Boston Children's Hospital published a paper not too long ago about systematic weaning from thickening. And the results that they've had um, there at their hospital. So this is another class that I'm really interested in because I feel like this is something that comes up all the time. We make management strategies. We talk to families about we're going to do the thickener, but then there's not an exit strategy, you know, and so it's difficult to then help kids wean from that. So that's another really clinically relevant class that I'm interested in that's happening this year. It's going to be on Friday, November 18th at 345. And then infant feeding and development using the Sense program to guide developmental care in high risk infants. This is being presented by Bobby Panita from USC. This is another program that was put together by the topic committee, and we are really looking forward to Bobby's presentation here. It's specific to NICU populations, and she will talk about using sensory integration strategies to help promote feeding and swallowing and overall development um, in the. Uh, NICU population. So we're excited to have Bobby come present with us. Reframing your clinical thinking, critical analysis of PFD treatments um, is being presented by Kara Fletcher-Larson um, and Jennifer Castix. Um Jennifer is at the University of Arizona. And of course, Kara is at Boston Children's Hospital, like we talked about before. And that's a one-hour presentation at uh, on Friday, November 18th at 1 p.m. So lots of good Friday topics for everybody. There's also a panel um, on ITSI implementation, research and practice patterns that will utilize an interdisciplinary panel uh, to talk to us. And it's specific to pediatric populations. So this is another area that comes up every time I go somewhere. Um, we're all talking about vegan liquids and use, you know, changing from that national dysphagia diet language into ITSI terminology and, and making that standard of care um, in settings. So this one is specific to pediatric populations. I'm looking forward to this one because questions about how to thicken breast milk and formula are so complicated. Um, And so then having members of the IDDSI group there to to talk us through their practical experience in that area, I think will be great. Um, The medical etiologies and feeding and swallowing disorders, a primer for the pediatric feeding specialist is being put on Friday at 8 a.m. So for all the early risers, this is a good one. Um, This will feature SLPs from Boston Children's Hospital, and they're going to talk us through the different uh, medical etiologies that we often see in our feeding clinics uh, and related, correlated feeding and swallowing issues that go with that. So an excellent um, opportunity for students uh, and professionals, especially those that might think they want to, they've been in one area of practice, maybe they've worked with a lot of adults and they're thinking about making that changeover, then that's a great primer, I think. There, the next one that I wanted to talk about, and I just have two more, is the Lungs, Heart, and Brain: A Medical Tutorial for SLPs in the NICU. So, again, thinking about our NICU colleagues and providing an opportunity for them to learn um, in-depth information about bronchopulmonary dysplasia, um, patent ductus arteriosus, and hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, uh, and the feeding and swallowing impacts of those for the. Babies we work with in the NICU. And the last one is case studies in pediatric fees, advanced interpretation and treatment planning. This is a star studded lineup to me because we've got Jenny Reynolds and Claire Miller with Susan Millette and April Johnson um, doing a whole hour of fees interpretation, which is. Something that we all, um, anybody that's working in fees, I think we all appreciate the opportunity to talk these cases out loud and to see examples and how would you manage that. And here's what I would do and an opportunity to really have good conversation um, around these case studies and provide advanced training in the area of fees and the area of interpretation. So those are the invited sessions that are going to be from the pediatric feeding and swallowing topic area. The topic committee as a whole worked really hard in putting these together. We had great input from everybody and we are so grateful to the presenting authors that are, that are taking time to put this information together and bring it to us in New Orleans. So I hope to see lots of your listeners there as well over those three days of conference. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you for sharing all that. I'm excited. Yeah. I think it'll be good. I'm excited to have advanced level. Yeah. Yeah courses happening, yeah, right. some that will require uh, extra registration, but some that don't, you know, and we were able to get that advanced level um, there. And so if people are working towards BCSS, this is an opportunity to get that intermediate and advanced level training as something they're already attending.
0: Yeah. Cool. Awesome. So earlier
1: we talked about pediatric feeding disorder and the paper that came out, that was a consensus Based um, panel definition of PFD. So it is defined as problems with oral feeding, so not age appropriate oral feeding that can involve four different distinct areas medical, nutritional, feeding skill, and psychosocial functioning. And so that consensus panel was convened by a group called Feeding Matters. Feeding Matters used to be known as Popsicle. It is a parent-driven organization. It was started by parents who had children um, that had pediatric dysphagia, and then that progressed into other types of feeding issues as the children developed. And they were really frustrated um, with the lack of support uh, and information about pe- uh, pediatric dysphagia, about um, pediatric feeding issues. And they came together to start this organization. Um, and now their work just continues to proliferate into our profession and not just speech language pathology, but also occupational therapy and, and pediatric medicine as well. So with the PFD Um, diagnosis, which is now a part of the ICD codes, they were able to track in the most recent paper that came out estimates that more than one in 37 children under the age of five are affected by pediatric feeding disorder here in the United States. Um, That number is huge. And we've had other papers in the past that tried to give us information about incidence and prevalence of pediatric dysphagia, but weren't able to to really narrow in that closely because of coding issues and reporting issues and what counts as dysphagia. Everybody in this area knows there's a lack of agreement about what the definition of dysphagia is. And so it makes it difficult to track kids in this area. But using the PFD diagnostic code, um, they estimate that one in 37 children under the age of five is, is experiencing um, pediatric feeding disorder. And so that number was jarring to me because that's getting up into prevalence data around autism and other things that we know are prevalent in our community that we expect to see um, when we're working with children. And so I just felt like pediatric dysphagia and even feeding um, and swallowing issues in general are often thought of as, well, that's just, you know, clinical populations. That's where you see that. We don't really see that in the community. We don't see that outside of hospital settings. And I think these numbers certainly indicate that you do. If you're working in pediatrics, you are likely working with children that have some aspect of oral feeding difficulty. And so, that, to me, speaks to our need in the field of speech pathology to ramp up our educational efforts around dysphagia in general, but specific to pediatric dysphagia. I and mean, we often hear, and um, Emily Zimmerman has done some papers looking at programming in our graduate schools and, and how much education we get about uh, feeding and swallowing issues. And in some cases, it, there's nothing on the books, like there's not a class or a seminar or anything like that. And in some cases, we're getting full, um, you know, three hour course credits. In some places, it's just an elective. And in some places, you get a lecture as part of your adult dysphagia class.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So these numbers to me speak to um, the urgency of ramping up our educational efforts in this area.
0: Yeah. I think. Can I say that I think it's probably even higher? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This would be in
1: kids that are reported, right, and yeah, that are right, seeking right. services. That's, yep. Yeah, yep.
0: that's exactly what I was going to say. My my son's six now, but you know when we left the NICU, you know they pulled his NG tube and we left the NICU, and it was just like good luck, you know. And we never were able to find an SLP that understood pediatric feeding disorders until I think he was like four. So he went that whole time with just me trying to figure things out and, you know, me talking to anybody that I knew, but yeah, I just think, and, and sort of the years I've spent, you know, advocating for him, I've had so many other people come to me, like, where did you find somebody? Like, who do I even look for? You know, I think people don't really even associate speech pathologists with being the ones that treat pediatric feeding disorders. So I think we have to do a better job marketing and RPR with that as well. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, and, and we're part of a multidisciplinary team. Um, certainly if we're talking about medical nutrition, feeding skill and psychosocial issues, we, we don't manage all of that, but we are, we should be a, an integral part of that team. I feel like our training should put us in that unique position because we do get the anatomy and the physiology for feeding and swallowing. I just, wonder, tell me what you think. I read all these studies that tell me that students come out of their graduate programming and they do not feel confident managing anything in the area of dysphagia, right? Like that's the one that consistently comes up as we we don't feel comfortable doing this. So, and we know from other studies that education doesn't equal confidence or competence, right? So I, if i give you more education about something that doesn't mean that's going to move the needle on your confidence or your perceived competence in this area so what what can we do to <laughs> to move the needle and to have clinicians come out and feel prepared at an entry level like none of our graduate programs have a mission to create specialists in any one area but but to provide um education that makes clinicians entry-level prepared to work across the scope of practice. So what can we do to to change the needle on their confidence and competence?
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's really multifactorial. I think, you know, it starts with the grad programs with, like you said, you know, some just have like a one credit elective. You know, I mean, I didn't have anything on pediatric dysphagia in grad school. I just had, you know, one class on regular dysphagia. So I think there does need to be more education there, you know, whether it is a a full three-hour, you know, three-credit-hour course. And then I think from there, I think the tough part is, you know, we're obviously living in COVID, post-COVID times now, but there's just not many placements out there or SLPs that are working with pediatric feeding disorders to take on, you know, act as a mentor. I think, you know, there's so many SLPs looking for mentors, looking for mentorship, looking even for just, you know, accountability, you know, just like a group to sort of join to, you know, discuss cases and things like that. So, you know, not didn't mean to plug the collective here, but you know, it's sort of something that we do in the collective is is, yeah. you know, provide support and mentorship and sort of those accountability groups just for people to have a place to discuss case studies. So I wish that something like that could be duplicated on, you know, sort of a much grander scale for sort of all grad programs or even all, you know, externship placements, you know, I know that's a lot to put on the externship supervisor, but it's just, you know, I don't know how we get more externship placements or how we get more SLPs that are out working in these types of settings to agree to mentor some of these clinicians.
1: Yeah, I think I think what you're talking about with mentorship is really is really where we haven't we haven't bridged from graduate school into the the work setting, um, we do have a clinical fellowship year, but I don't know that that we're always set up to utilize that in the way that it was intended. Right to have direct mentorship, to have a lot of direct feedback. I think a lot of clinicians go into settings and they're the SLP, and and that mentorship piece is is missing. Based on what I understand about moving the people's confidence and competence perceptions it really requires them to have that direct observation and feedback that you're doing a good job and and this is the right thing and the opportunity to talk through um treatment options and and things that can be done and and come to consensus and trial and the report back and and you know just like I do from working in hospital and other settings, like there's no time in the day for that, yep, yep, most of the time we are um eight to four thirty and beyond with patient care and then trying to do competent documentation and and check all of the compliance boxes and and we miss that piece. So it's it's challenging because it sounds like the piece then requires a lot of time and invested effort that people don't seemingly have outside of a graduate program. Like that's that's where you have that chance for observation and direct feedback and and talking through cases and simulation, I think, is going to help us um simulation activities. And then debriefing after those is a really um, nice way to hit these. I don't want to say low incidence because we just talked about how high the incidence and prevalence is in this area, but things that we just don't see every day, they require a higher level of care and so often aren't available for students to, to do as as part of clinical placements.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I think there's a lot of SLPs that sort of are willing to sort of learn as they go. You know, they're they're willing to, you know, like you said, attend all these, you know, courses at ASHA or, you know, take other webinars, take other courses. But then I think really just getting that direct feedback with a specific case that's right in front of you that day, I think is what just so many SLPs need to really build the confidence to say, okay, yes, I am on the right path. Like you said, even if it's just positive reinforcement, like, yes, you're doing the right thing. Great job. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but at the time, you know, most of the time I should say, we're all sort of on our own little islands. Like, is this right? What am I doing? You know, and if you don't have anybody to bounce those ideas off of it can really be a confidence killer. So, yeah. And you also,
1: I mean, you want to do the best for the, the babies and the um, children that you're working with. I think there's a lot of pressure there and uh, for both adults and people that are working in the pediatric area in dysphagia and, and PFD. But to your point about when you came home from NICU and, and you had your son with you and then no, Follow-up guidance about what to do and how to how to do how to get into the next steps with feeding and those sorts of things. I think that is the same experience that drove people to create Feeding Matters, and so they have a really nice website. They have um, lots of family-specific materials um, that can be shared. They've developed a screening tool and they've done the the work um, looking at validity of this screening tools so though, that that tool can then be shared. You can print it off their website and it can be used in pediatricians offices. Uh, and so I appreciate uh, the parent driven work that has come out of feeding matters. And just wanted to make sure that we talked about it today so that people can check it out. Um, they have parent support groups, virtual parent support groups that they run um, through feeding matters. So when you're in, in, as a parent, you could have, really benefited, you know, from that opportunity to at least connect with other parents that were in similar situations. And I appreciate that because it can feel, even though one in 37 kids, it can feel like you're the only one in the world who has a child that just won't eat.
0: I was the only one I knew.
1: <laughs> yeah. So Yeah. 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 They've done a nice job of doing that.
0: Yeah. And another point that I would like to add to, I think is, is for SLPs to rely on the parents. I think, you know, one of, one of my son's first actual feeding therapist that we got, I really loved her sort of vulnerability in that, you know, she was like, there's still just not a ton out there about this. You know, I know what I know, but I'm willing to go back and do a lot of research. Your son obviously has a very rare (laughs) chromosomal diagnosis. So she's like, there's so many unknowns, but I'm willing to sort of do the research and find what I can find. But I'm also want to rely on you to sort of tell me what you've seen and what you've observed. And I just, I really respected that that she wanted me to be so integral. Like, and of course she knew I was an SLP, but she was like, take your SLP brain hat off. Like, tell me what you're you know, observing as a mom, Just you know, and, mom. Yeah. 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 And, and I, and I really respected that. And I think we had such a good relationship because she was willing and open to listening to sort of what I had observed. And I was like, no, there's no way that would ever work. Like, Oh yeah, that might work. And it was a heck of a lot of trial and error and whether that's right or not, I don't know. But we were happy with her, and he made a lot of progress. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it is trial and error, right?
1: That's all yeah. of what we do is let's let's see how this works yeah. based on the evidence that's available, based on parent preference and patient preference and information they've provided. Then let's see what happens. Um, I I think what you describe the relationship that you had with your SLP is so important there because she did. She did make you part of the care team, mm-hmm. and I think we we talk about patient and family centered care um and we talk about how their what patients and our clients and and their families tell us is integral, and that they are just as important as the physician on the team or the o t on the team. but I don't know that in practice we always do that, and it sounds like she really did you know she used the information that you provided and let you be his mom, right You didn't have to say, well. Any kind of clinical terms, this is what's happening. Just describe it. And and then she was able to brainstorm with you. And that that is what facilitates progress beyond anything else that we do. Sometimes it's the relationship and the trust that's built to try things and to recognize when things aren't working and to shift gears in response to the feedback that we're provided. So I think that's a wonderful example of what um, we're all striving for with patient and family-centered care.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that memory. Oh, I didn't want to
1: say that the instrument that they have, the screening tool that they have that can be printed out um, and used in physician, like physician offices and um, pediatricians offices. Currently what's being done in most offices based on um, the data that we have is that physicians look at growth as the measure of nutritional sufficiency as it should be. But nutritional sufficiency is just one area of that PFD consideration. And so the screening tool that that has been developed and is available from the Feeding Matters website goes beyond that because looking just at growth, we're not catching kids um, that need to be referred for further assessment and for intervention um, and, and family supports around pediatric feeding disorder. So I think that that tool that they've developed could really help bridge that gap because it's mostly identified in children under the age of five. uh, And that's when families and and children are still regularly going to well child checkups at least once a year. And so that's a great place to add that. Now, I know that pediatricians have a million things I have to screen for, uh, but this is a six question like six question test. um, That's just yes or no. You know, it's just dichotomous choices that, that is really easy for families to use. And so if you are working in a multidisciplinary team, that's part um, that has influence in the community and that, that works regularly with physician referrals, then that is a tool that you can share with them that maybe they can incorporate into practice to help identify kids earlier. It's certainly an easier job to help with PFD the earlier that we catch it, so then we don't have layers of years and years of habits that might have formed that make it difficult to to help kids get to a functional feeding situation. Yeah, cool. Thank you for sharing. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about the these papers, and then we can talk about um, video fluoroscopy there too. So there, are, um, there are is in a paper that came out earlier this year that was many, many years in the making that was published in AJSLP. Now it was uh, consensus practice guidelines around the use of flexible endoscopic evaluation of swallowing in our field. So that project started at ASHA. I don't even remember which ASHA because it was a long time ago. Um, Dr. Langmore came over and she said, I have this idea. Um, There's a paper that's been published out of the European Society of Swallowing and Swallowing Disorders group, where they have a training that they do for all providers uh, that are members of their group that are going to do fees. So it's a standardized training protocol. uh, And they published it. And and I think we should do something like that. Huh? That sounds really interesting. It also sounds really challenging because we don't have um a, a process to do those kinds of things here necessarily we don't have a governing body that puts out um clinical practice guidelines like like what is there so it, that started the conversation that we then roped other people into and so it was through the american board of swallowing and swallowing disorders that we were able to put together a working group to consider the literature, to consider their own clinical practices, uh, and then come to consensus about, okay, here are the commonalities in all of our training. Here's what we all did that then resulted in this um, outcome of having competency around using um, this modality for dysphagia assessment. And so it was a lot of information and then we were thinking about across the lifespan. So we ended up splitting it into two different papers. And so the first one that came out was about adult specific or using fees in the adult population specifically in training in that area and beyond training, it it talks all the way through like best practice for cleaning and equipment and setting up the study and interpreting the study and Provides some templates that can be used, uh, and so that paper came out in January. And we are we've submitted um, the second paper that is uh, the same type of information in a part two, and it's specific for pediatric fees. So I'm really excited about those papers because I think they give they give clinicians information that that they can immediately use, which has always um, been my goal. You asked in our Anyway, you asked about papers that had inspired me or that research papers that I had read that I was really motivated by. And I gave you two that were around uh, doing video philosophy in infant populations, and they were published or written and published by Dr. Lisa Newman, um, who is the person who started the feeding and swallowing program at Le Children's Hospital, and both of those papers provided very practical information that pulled in all the literature on the topic summarized it and presented it to me in a way that I could utilize it right away right it wasn't it wasn't something that was so obtuse that I can read it and go, that's interesting, but I don't know what this has to do with me and the person I'm going to see on Monday. And so those papers to me were inspiring for the career that I eventually went after um, because it was, the papers were written in a way that it was clinically relevant. And that's always what I've tried to do with the research that that I've done is keep the keep the clinician part of me first. And so interpret all of the the data and the research that I've done through that lens. What does this mean for the person that gets this information? And how does this help or how does this inform the care that they're going to provide after they read this paper? And so these two papers then that we did through that ABSSD working group fulfilled that That goal um, to provide really useful information that was evidence-based and it was presented in a very practical format through AJSLP for the first paper so that we we could do that because we hear that all the time. When I'm working with my students here, and then you know, in the community and and beyond, is we just need more guidance. Like, what are we supposed to do to get to this um, level of competency and that sort of thing? So this provides a, a starting place. Here's what this group of people did to reach competency in this area. Here's the literature that supports this approach. Here's a, here's a plan, and then of course you can. Can go from that, so I'm excited about that first paper that came out this year, and I'm hopeful that the next one will be accepted for publication as well. And so we'll have those resources available to us uh, in the in the speech pathology community cool. to help guide further practice.
0: Awesome. Can I ask you the million dollar question about how to get training for pediatric fees? Yeah, um, I'm not going to have a great answer, but I'm going <laughs> to
1: I'm going to tell you um, what we know. So the The key, the point is that we have to be in settings that utilize that um, modality. And so the legalities of it are different in every state, which then make it challenging. Um, When I was in Tennessee, there were rules on the books that you couldn't independently pass the scope until you until an ENT said that you were competent in that area. Well, so. ENTs are not in the business of training speech pathologists to pass scopes, right? So finding people to do that was a challenge. So what we did to get the service going was we did it collectively. So we had the ENT that was the endoscopist, and then we had the speech pathologist that was feeding and interpreting. One of the things that you know people say about fees is it's so convenient and it's, so easy to do, and you can do it at the bedside, and all of that is true. I'm not disparaging that, but it's it does require multiple hands, especially when you're working in infant and toddler populations. Toddlers don't want things up their nose, yeah. um, so like that two to six uh, time frame, I think, is the most challenging for for doing fees, and it it requires the caregiver, it requires the SLP, and it. Re- if you don't have an ENT present or another person, you know, to do endoscopy, then it's going to require two SLPs because you can't watch and manage the scope and feed that way. And so similar then to video fluoroscopy, where you need the radiologist present and the SLP, and then possibly um, the parent or the nurse or another caregiver to help um, that situation, they they are intensive. But the competency area um, can come then in different parts, passing the scope, then you need someone to help you do it, so then you need to be in a in a setting where you have access to infants children that are requiring endoscopy that may be accomplished with an ENT or with another SLP depending on where you are, but you have to have the patient population to do that. Um, Jamie Fisher, who you know um, has worked on a pediatric fees course to give the didactic information and to give some practical strategies and interpretation practice. But then the competency comes from the motor skill building with practice um, in that area. So I think you can you could split it in terms of looking at doing and becoming competent in the interpretation and the planning of that fees in the pediatric population. And then if you want to be pediatric endoscopist, then you have got to be in a setting where there are consistent opportunities to pass scope.
0: Yeah.
1: Is that fair? That's not the answer you want, or I want, I want want to go here and then you can do this for two weeks and you got the information, um, which you could, but then if you don't have an opportunity to practice it on a regular basis. Yeah.
0: Yep. I feel like I'm a broken record, so I wanted someone else to explain it too. So (laughs) (laughs) stay (laughs) there. Or maybe there was something new I didn't know about. So yeah. Yeah. So
1: I think I think we have a an opportunity to do the to learn and become competent in the interpretation of the material because we can watch video, we can get feedback, we can learn to recognize penetration and aspiration and, and all of those pieces the physiology pieces in addition to the symptom pieces over time and with remote feedback, even like you can look at video with a mentor and, and do that. But the, the other piece is truly a hands-on, you've got to have the practice and you need a variety of children to practice with. And that, that comes from being in a setting where that opportunity is consistently available.
0: Yep. Thank you. Uh huh. All right. Last last topic in the area of videofluoroscopy.
1: In addition to fees, talking about instrumental assessment, there's been good work in progress done with the. I'm going to mess up the acronym, but essentially the infant bottle feeding version of MBSIMP. Dr. Leftengreif and Dr. Martin Harris, you know, have put the paper out that establishes with good psychometric data. The uh, components of the evaluation and a, a protocol that can be used that does account for fatigue and and watching past fatigue, so I feel like they have done a nice job of incorporating the previous twenty plus years of data that's come out about using video fluoroscopy in infant populations and have given us uh, a very objective way to measure and um, report on video fluoroscopy that we haven't had uh, in the last 20 years. So that that piece I am really excited about. I look forward to the next steps there with the um, competency training and the interpretation piece uh, that they've done, like they've done with the adult population. And then seeing how we can use that to, and to further our knowledge around infant swallowing and dysphagia. Uh, we don't have the The same advantage of being able to see video fluoroscopy in infants that don't have dysphagia because certainly they couldn't consent to being part of of a study with no direct benefit that uses ionizing radiation versus in adult populations. We do have some preliminary data um, and with Dr. Martin Harris's database large numbers of people that don't have identified dysphagia and and we have their uh, results of video fluoroscopy to help inform about what normal swallowing is. So I think that having this set of variables to use and report on um, will help us build our understanding, if not of normal um, infants, but within different populations so that we can begin to understand what the features of dysphagia are when we're looking at kids with respiratory impairment versus when we're looking at kids that have um, neurologic involvement versus when we're looking at kids that have um, congenital heart disease. So it'll help us build those profiles to understand the impairment better so that then we can work on innovating our treatment options in that area. Cool. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah. We cover everything. Oh, yeah. So actually, um, I will say that your work and the work of others like you, that doing these kind of grassroots um, support support group is not the right word. um, Organizations to help provide resources to clinicians really inspired Dr. Guerin and I to think about, okay, what what can we do here in our state to provide clinicians with not only education, but an opportunity to connect and understand who their colleagues are that are doing the same kind of work in dysphagia in our state. So to start building relationships across the state through the Alabama Dysphagia Collective. So we started and we planned this big conference event where We would pull together people from our state. We were going to do it in Mobile, which is in the southern part, and then in Tuscaloosa, which is in the kind of central part of the state, and hopefully get people from all over to participate. And that was in 2019, and it was planned for 2020. And then we all know what happened um, in 2020. And so that got put on pause, but it gave us a chance to think, okay, what else could we do? And so over the course of the last two years, we've provided quarterly continuing education opportunities at no cost uh, to clinicians in our state. And we've partnered with one of the groups in Tennessee as well uh, to provide interdisciplinary presentations uh, across a number of different topics that are relevant and current in the area of dysphagia. And then this year, we were able to host our first uh, in-person big event that we planned three years ago uh and so the second iteration of that is coming up at the end of this month it's September 30th and October 1st here in Tuscaloosa uh and then we will have a, an optional day on um October 1st where we're going to do some fee skill uh trainings an opportunity to get those first passes and experiences with scopes with direct feedback from the instructors that are there to at least start that training process for people that are interested in learning more and having a chance to incorporate fees into their clinical practice. So um, first, thanks to you, you know, and, and, and people like you that have put together these groups that have really sort of inspired us all to think about What else can we do in our own communities to provide that kind of mentorship and and just peer support to each other and connect all the disparate clinicians across the state that oftentimes are seeing people in the large metropolitan areas back to the clinicians that are serving people when they go home and more of the the rural areas. So uh, we're excited about continuing that opportunity Alabama Dysphagia Collective is on Instagram and I think Facebook because I'm old, Um, so we still have that as well. But we would love for people to to follow us and and to be a part of that community as well.
0: Awesome! I love that. Mm-hmm. Love that. I love that you guys did that. I, I love anybody with an action plan. So yeah,
1: <laughs> got to do it. something. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, so yeah. You have got to get connected. There's so many opportunities to provide that peer support in in our state, but we don't even know the names of the people that that are a, a city over. So it was an attempt there. I
0: don't know that we've been super successful yet, but we're still plugging away. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, if you build it, they will come. That is my, that is my motto. So that's what happened for you for sure in the thousands and thousands and <laughs> thousands. So awesome. Well, thanks so much memory. I really enjoyed this conversation. So is there anything else you want to share with the people or any final thoughts? I don't think so. I'm excited that we're all able to get back together
1: again and I'm looking forward to the chance to see each other. I think Asha will be great this year. Um it was it's always well thought out and, and intentional in, in their activities. But um the first time back last year in Boston there were a few we weren't in Boston and D C there are some a few people and then certainly I'm hoping that, that New Orleans will be a draw and that they'll be we'll be back together. So I'm looking forward to that.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Memory. Yeah, thank you. It's good to see you. Hope to see you in November. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Special credit to Danny B. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.